for no fault of their own, uh, airport bars are maybe not great. You know, there's other reasons too. And they had an, a, a Woodford Reserve popcorn old-fashioned. And I'm like, look, worst case scenario, it's going to be sweet whiskey. And by the way, it was lunchtime. I got a fucking amazing, beautifully presented Woodford Reserve old-fashioned with a little clothes peg clipping a little cornet of popcorn on the side of the glass. Like 10 years ago, that would have won Diageo world class. And I'm having it in the shitty airport of Scotland in, frankly, a shitty bar. That's how good things are. We are killing it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What is happening, friends and neighbors, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, etc., etc. Welcome back to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I am Chris LeBeau. Today, boy oh boy, we've got that one. You got to go pop that popcorn and uh, or get your road trip ready because uh, uh, I have the one and only Phil Duff on today. What do you say about Phil Duff? I mean, he's an educator, uh, now uh, uh, helping uh, contract out to still his own brand, uh, uh, Old Duff Geneva. Uh, he is a longtime consultant and advisor to many, many people throughout the industry, uh, former proprietor of a bar called Door 74 in Amsterdam, uh, which for a while was on the uh, world's uh, 50 best, uh, longtime bartender, uh, a fa- Fun place to jump in today is I always remember reading the book A Proper Drink by Robert Simonson. And one of my first big, like, what in the heck moments was this idea of um, a lot of bartender training really being owed to work uh, the ground laid by TGI Fridays when it became uh, one of the first real singles bars uh, in modern American culture. And uh, Phil was the source of that story. And so we got to kind of dig into that, what it was, some of the, of course, uh, less savory things. You know, he you know kind of equated, hey, when this first opened up, it was a little bit more of the Mad Men era, but how it worked to really kind of right the ship on itself. And, uh, and that for, despite that very quickly, Fridays became a family bar in the U.S. For a long time, it was the go-to bar uh, in a lot of Europe and trained up a lot of the people who've become uh, many uh, influential in the mixology field today. Uh, Phil has been a judge in the world's 50 best bars. He was uh, last, you've heard me talk too many times about, we'll get into it again today, about my trip to New Orleans last year for Tales of the Cocktail. Phil was the first formal uh, director of education for Tales. He talks about why he uh, essentially told Tales they needed to hire him for the task. He, um, one of the things we talked about too is, I mean, with Phil having been in the industry for a good long while, uh, 
talking about things that have changed over time. And one of the things he talked about was seeing various trends in education changing over time in terms of what people were interested to consume. We are going to get very deep into uh, Geneva, as Phil says, and if it's pronounced differently for all you Dutch people out there, Geneva, Geneva, however you want to say that, um, pardon my uh, non-French in that regard. You know, as deep as this podcast gets, we're going to talk about Dutch princes in 1689 and everything. Uh, Phil is a riot of a human being. Uh, uh, you can just tell that he is brimming with knowledge, but also generosity. When we sat down to talk, he was like, hey, let's just see where this thing goes. And uh, we talked for a good long while. This is a uh, a really hilarious, rich conversation. Um, in order to keep up with Phil, all of his uh, you know details will be in the show notes, but a great place to start since I often lead with Instagram. Uh, at Philip, P-H-I-L-I-P-S, Duff, D-U-F-F, uh, is his handle on Instagram. So Philip S. Duff. And from there, in his uh, bio, you can link out to his podcast and everything else you want to keep up with. One other thing, you know what? Worth saying. Uh, Phil talks about the importance of knowing the spirits industry, how it actually works. A lot of people think it does. We're going to link as well. Importantly, you should definitely listen to Phil's talk on how the spirits industry works. So that's what I got. Uh, hey, if you love this show, we would love it if you'd subscribe or think about that one friend that you love or want to torture and uh, send uh, this episode or another one you've loved over to them. So that's what I've got, my conversation with Phil Duff. So one of the things, Phil, that I was interested in as I thought about where to start this is, you know, you've you've seen a lot of transformation and evolution in this industry over, you know, decades at this point. Like, you know, it feels like you have a good level of enthusiasm for the work. What, I mean, the great part is we have bottles of spirits, but like, what are the things that keep you, that have you energized right now, if anything that comes to mind? Oh, bottles of spirits. But um, I, what I like to say to young bartenders is uh, go to college and then you can get a better job. No, just kidding. What I'd like to say is you're going to burn out several times, right? So rather than fighting it, embrace it. Like uh, bartenders tend to burn out, first of all, on cocktails, right? And the first kind of cocktail they burn out is citrus cocktails. When they first, the first cocktail they ever had, everyone can remember the first one they had with fresh lime juice or fresh lemon juice. The, oh my God. And then after a few years, you were like, fuck this shit. You know, you're citrus out. So then you go on to the other cocktails and then eventually you burn out on cocktails. You're like, fuck cocktails. I want a cold beer and a shot of mezcal. And obviously, if you're still in the business of making cocktails, this is difficult. So what you have to do and what I did when exactly this thing happened to me, I forced myself to embrace the the new generation and the new kind of cocktails that were coming out. Because after a few years in the job, you could be like 25 and you could be looking down and saying, fuck these, these kids, these kids, they don't know anything with their sous vide and their road of apps. But you should go and try those cocktails, taste those cocktails, learn the new techniques, and you will reacquire the passion and enthusiasm that you had for this industry. You know, and I've gone through several cycles of that. A second thing I would say, Chris, is 
to learn about the whole industry. I've actually, I, I do a lot of teaching and consulting about the drinks industry itself. And of all the seminars I've ever taught all around the world in, you know, a couple of dozen countries by now, by far the most popular one was actually one that no sponsor would touch. It was put on without a sponsor years ago at Tales of the Cocktails and it's called How the Global Drinks Business Works. And separately, I've had two top-notch bartenders approach me from New York in the last month and say, hey, Phil, have you got a reading list or something? I really want to learn more about the industry. Because when you learn more about the industry, you're learning about marketing and finance and distributing and shipping. And maybe you didn't know that. And you thought you knew about the industry because you poured the stuff a shot at a time. But when you learn about the people who make it 10,000 liters at a time and the people who ship it and the people who market it and the companies that buy one another, I find that endlessly fascinating. And if that doesn't really work, you probably should check out Craigslist for a new job. I, uh, yeah, to people listening, and we'll link to it uh, on Phil's podcast. Um, I literally just finished, I don't know, about uh, 38 minutes ago, we'll say, uh, his seminar on the global drinks business. And it is fascinating as you know we you know for those of us that are in the weeds on some of this stuff you hear a term like diageo or pernod ricard and yet where did these things really come from what does their dominance and ascent look like and it was cool that you kind of also were able to highlight some of those major tipping point moments when guinness went from a beer company to exploding and suddenly before you know it like oh wait now we're ripe for acquisition so anyways these details of things we take at this point as a given, um, how did they come to be is is fascinating. So you are right. Yeah, I mean, I, I always explain to people who aren't from the industry, um, and I start talking about this thing, and no one takes the drinks industry seriously. And within the drinks industry, nobody takes the spirits industry seriously. Believe it or not, I know the CEOs of billion-dollar companies who tell me they get essentially bullied at business conferences by the CEOs of, you know, Procter and Gamble and what like that, even though they might be running much bigger companies. And as you said, tipping points are important, but I always explain it. There's a brilliant food writer called Mark Kurlansky, and he wrote a 360 page book about salt. And you would think you're not going to be able to get 360 pages just about salt, but it, it he could have written more. The guy's a genius, by the way, and he's written lots and lots of books, but I especially like the one on salt. So that's what the in drinks industry is like. You are learning about the history of, of civilization as we know it. You're learning about a major cog in the wheel of society. You're learning about humans. You're learning about marketing, which I, I love marketing. It was my degree. And obviously, you're learning about what gets that bottle into your hand on the back bar. You are the end of a very, very long chain. And I equally teach people in the drinks businesses uh, how bars work because worse than that, they think that they know how bars work because everyone thinks they know how bars work because they once made a Tom Collins at home, right? In the same way they think they know how restaurants work. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to show you how they actually work. You know, in the seminar, you talked about it in a segue to another thing I was curious, that's a very prescient topic in our industry was certainly talking about, and I'm sure a little bit of it's, of course, like formulaic of the amount of time uh, Tangeray spends getting a recipe right for number 10 is probably pretty intensive, but to then actually put the juice in the bottle is not that expensive. And uh, one of your recent podcasts uh, with David Gluckman was on the NA industry, and I was 
I would love Phil because I think it's it's wonderful, you know. And you talk in that you just finished up a a dry January as we are here at the end of a or dry January ish, dryish. Uh, but anyways, yeah. but I think it is so refreshing, maybe to use an apropos term that you know you don't want to drink anymore. You want to take a break. You're out for the night. You don't want to get completely sauced. It's lovely that there's more and more options. But one of the things I thought was fascinating is you talked about the economics of producing a spirit, and you said nothing really squares for you on why these bottles cost what they cost other than marketing and status. That like you, as someone who's helped make a lot of different spirits, the math doesn't square for you other than they want to position themselves in an equivalent fashion. Yeah, I mean, on that podcast, I kind of thought my way to a new perspective on the non-elk. So you got to, first of all, it's a brand new category. It did not exist eight and a half years ago. Eight years ago, I flew to Berlin and I met a guy called uh, Ben Branson at the Bar Convent Berlin. And I actually missed his talk, which was, as far as I'm aware, the first talk ever about non-elk spirits and the first public viewing ever of Seedlip. And he very kindly, personally gave me a tasting right afterwards. So I've been following this ever since. And there's a couple of major errors that they all make, all 150 non-alt brands. One is lying about uh, the massive margins, right? This stuff, it, it's selling very often at the same price or more than full-strength liquor, and you cannot justify it. And they're doing what liquor marketers used to do about 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you could lie like a bastard. It was great. There was no Google. Life was good. Now you can't lie, right? You also shouldn't lie, but they don't teach that one in marketing school. Believe me, I was there. Um, the lying, like they say things like, oh, it costs so much more to make a non-alcoholic spirit than an alcoholic spirit. Sometimes they say, oh, we have to evaporate off the alcohol and i'm like yeah but you're not evaporating it into the sky you, you condense it again and then you can sell it that's how business works um they say oh we have to use more botanicals botanicals are cheap and even if a non-alcoholic spirit cost twice as much to make as an alcoholic spirit that means the liquid would cost two dollars for a bottle instead of one it's a universal truth accepted that the bottle always costs more than the liquid inside so it doesn't square in that sense, and I think it's kind of childish that nobody puts their hands up and, and, and says it, um, but it does square as a luxury good, as a Veblen good. It works because it's expensive. Because, you know, you go out to bars and restaurants, or even if you're entertaining at home, and we humans are herd animals. We're tribal creatures. And especially with drinking, especially men, I think, more than women, we proclaim our status with what we drink. That's how luxury and ultra premium spirits came to be, right? People just kept making a more expensive version of something and justifying it with packaging and advertising and where it was available. Ooh, you can only get this there, that kind of thing. So if you think of it that way, if you go out with your mates and you're not drinking, and let's say you just want to drink soda water because you love the cold, refreshing taste of soda water and everyone else is drinking $18 cocktails, if they're your friends, they probably won't even let you buy a round, right? Because a round would probably be, at current New York prices, uh, about $90 if there's four of you, right? And if you're just drinking $2 soda water, they'd say, hey, we got this. But that kind of 
cuts your status down to being a child almost, you know? So looking at uh, the non-Al spirits uh, as, as Veblen goods, goods that derive their status from the price, not despite the price, but from the high price, uh, it's suddenly made a whole lot more sense to me. And there are non-alcoholic spirits that I love and that I like seeing on menus where friends of mine work for the companies. Um, but that that kind of, that niggles at me a little bit. And the second thing that niggles at me a little bit about the non-alcs is that it is, I'm here, I'm here to tell all your listeners, it's a bit of a bubble. The only one that I know of well, no, there are a couple that were acquired by publicly listed companies. Perno has one, I think, called Cedars. Diageo has Seedlip. Uh, they've just killed off Acorn Aperitifs. I'm sure there's other ones. And they have to result. Uh, they have to, you know, give financial results, sales, losses, all that kind of thing. But the vast majority of non-alcs are privately held. <clears throat> there's a huge rush to create non-alc brands. Everyone's, oh, it's going to be worth $20 billion by 2026. And consequently, there's a lot of venture capital money that is pushing them. I don't think the sales are actually there that people are talking about. Everyone's talking about them because every non-alc can afford a $10,000 a month PR company. But I, when I talk to bar managers around the world, they're like, yeah, they don't really see us. So people are definitely buying one bottle. They're ordering one cocktail. Are they reordering it? I don't see that to a level that you would expect given all the many, 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 many news items about this is amazing. You know, so that's my take on it. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think you and David used the term in there, but it's like this idea that, you know, a bottle of Campari, you know, if you don't know what to use it or you buy it out of novelty sake, just as an example, but you don't really like it or don't really know what to do with it. You buy the one, but it collects dust and you never use it. You know, people buy the NA spirit to make an NA gin and tonic or whatever you want to call it. But do they, are they day-to-day, week-to-week leaning on that? Uh, because once they've done it, okay, that was fun. But am, do I really crave this NA drink on the regular? And and I think, you know, again, you and David kind of hit on this in your conversation. For for the fact that some of these one are like buy this bottle and this bottle and this bottle, it's a big ask. Versus in high end cocktail bars that are, you know, crafting great high end NA drinks, that feels more on par as opposed to something that's poor and poor and and we're done. Which is at least where it seems like a lot of the spirit companies seem to be pushing us right now. Well, everybody wants the consumer to be able to make a nice, easy drink at home because generally, and this is the trend in the US, uh, 80% of all the liquor sold is sold in liquor stores, not bars. The bars are the shop window, which is great. And you get to go in there and see an amazing bartender like our mutual friend, uh, Marshall at Valerie and Madame George in New York. And it's like, well, if this guy can't make it taste good, nobody can make it taste good. And you get to try, try before you buy. Right. You plonk down 20 bucks for a cocktail. You get probably the best cocktail you could possibly make with this stuff. And then you can decide if you're going to pay 40 or 50 or 60 bucks for the bottle at home. Right. Um, something else, though, that that kind of dawned on me is that uh, if you've ever noticed. The non-alcs all have best before dates. Now, my bottle of whiskey or, or my bottle of Geneva does not have a best before date. Right. And I was actually talking about this with a food scientist friend of mine in um, I was recently in Milan, although she's from Athens. And she said, well, maybe 
because of how they're classified, they have to put a best before date on it. Like if you go down to uh, the amazing spice store Calustians here in New York City, um, you can buy five million year old Himalayan salt, but even that five million year old Himalayan salt has a best before date, right? They have to put it on. And then I was communicating with a friend of mine who actually owns a extremely well-known and high-profile non-alk brand. And he said, well, it really is best before, right? Because they don't have alcohol in them, duh, non-alcoholic. Uh, the flavors really change and fade. And he said his, his range has a couple of different SKUs. And he said, well, one of them I think actually gets better. And there's another one that, to be honest, does not. So that's something else. If you are, you know, you you want to do dry January every year or a couple of times a year you throw a party, right? You want to have options. You can't you, you can't count on that non-alk spirit. Spirit. I'm doing that thing with my fingers if anyone's just listening. Uh, you can't count that your non-alk spirit is going to be at optimum quality. And, and it's okay, right? But it's not something that you think of. They've chosen the frame of we are non-alcoholic spirits instead of saying we're alcohol-flavored soft drinks. And there are advantages in how price is perceived by using that frame. But we also, you don't have to think about best before dates when it's booze. Anything that gets above 18 or 20% alcohol, you're pretty much good to go. Right, right. So something else I was interested in, kind of uh, uh, as spirits, you know, uh, continue to have their profile raised as, as cocktails continue to rise seemingly. You know, I see that you are a judge for the world's 50 best bars and, or at least have been at, at, at a moment. And um, so my question, Phil, is like when you are, you know, there's so much energy pouring into this space right now and the landscape, of course, of cocktails and, you know, globally is is just massive, but are there things without tipping your hand? What are you looking for? What gets you, are there ways to classify how you think about what you're looking for when you're actually evaluating a place or a judge is evaluating a bar? Well, first of all, uh, just to clarify, uh, if you are a judge of the world's 50 best bars, you're not allowed to disclose it. Okay. So cool. I couldn't tell you even if I was. I oh. was for a bit a year or so the uh, academy chair for all of North America. So okay. that meant I I coordinated all the voting. So I've seen inside the uh, the sausage, as it were. Um, there's a great kind of appeal to the way fifty best runs because they literally just ask you to list your best. I think it's seven bars. Right. And two of them have to be outside your area or outside your country if you're from a relatively small country. And you have to have visited them within the last year and you have to have like no interest in them. You can't be an investor or married to the owner or stuff like that. But it's all done on the honor system. And it has, no matter what you think of it, it's become wildly successful. I always tell the story. I'm very good friends with uh, all the owners and investors and founders of the Dead Rabbit in New York. And the Dead Rabbit has gone, to say it's gone from strength to strength is absurd. It's it's ridiculous. It's the most successful new bar in every sense of the word that New York has seen in a very long time. And I don't know if you know, but they were kind of, 
nipping along at number two for years, right? Because number one was the Artesian Bar in the Langham Hotel in London in the, the shiny heydays of uh, Alex Cretana and Simone. And a, it, it was rockstar. And then that entire crew left in one go. And suddenly Dead Rabbit went up to number one. Now, Dead Rabbit was at absolute capacity in those preceding years. You, you know, three floors open, all open for lunch, all the way through to whatever time they closed at, you know, one or two in the morning or whatever. You couldn't get in. Uh, it, you couldn't imagine it being any busier. The owners, I you know, I'd meet up and have a drink with Sean or Jack every now and then. And they'd be like, look at what we did last week. And they'd be like, they'd be baffled they were able to do that much in sales. And yet... And they were also extremely famous, right? They were winning every award, every time, bartending, cocktails, menus, bar, international, everything. They could like they they couldn't they couldn't fit all the awards on the back bar, even if they removed all the booze. And yet, when they moved up from number two to number one, they added a million dollars a year in revenue. Something that if you'd asked them before, wasn't possible. So there's a lot of, of good reason to pour money and efforts into this. And, you know, if you're from a little market and you work really, really hard on this for not too much money, you can get some kind of a mention. You can be on the 51 to 100 list or a regional list or a bubbling under list or the 50 best discovery list. Or a, if you don't get on any of them, there's probably a list for that as well. Right. But as this becomes a thing, as cocktail tourism becomes a thing, uh, it does expose something with all the awards. There's, I don't know if you've heard of the Pinnacle um, Awards. No, I haven't. Well, I'll explain what little I know about it in a minute as well, which is the, the major weakness is if you're not paying your judges, and I have judged many things for free, obviously, and I still do, uh, they'll find a way to pay themselves. By which I mean, we're human, you know, if, if your buddy works in a bar or they're very nice uh, or you just like it, well, you know, like there was one year a very famous bar, which I won't name, but it was Clover Club in New York, uh, <laughs> was nominated for an award. It wasn't 50 best, but it hadn't opened at the time, <laughs> right? Which is kind of a bummer, right? And, and these things these things happen. When you add lots of new judges you suddenly get loads of new entries from their regions, which is the whole idea, right? But there are bars on that list uh, that do not, not only should they not be on the list, they sh you should actively avoid them. They're terrible, right? And there are bars not on those lists that uh, are absolutely stunning. Right. And it's not the fault of the 50 best people. And it's not the fault of those bars or or anything like that. It's that nobody is Michelin. Nobody is, I don't know if everybody knows this, but the Michelin guide to restaurants and the stars and all this kind of thing has lost money every year for a century and continues to do this. It's subsidized by the sale of car tires. And that's the gold standard. And Michelin's not perfect either. So some people say, well, Michelin's not perfect, so why don't we just have an imperfect system and everybody votes? And I don't really know the answer. Yeah, I think um, it's really, it is nice to have like a directional 
pointing to things, but I would agree that um, uh, you should not take these things as doctrine. You should take them as, you know, something maybe worth looking at. But, you know, and I know there's at this point now, maybe like I saw an article, you know, Tom Macy put out a while ago saying like, hey, like, here's why it's probably okay to shake a martini or whatever, you know, now at this point in time. But like um, a bar that I won't name, the Connaught, uh, they uh, all their all their marketing is like they're on top of ladders pouring their martinis into glasses. Practically, I'm like, well, that's a hell of a way to aerate a martini right there. But they have achieved this massive success. And so I've not been, hopefully it's worth it. But when I see that, I think, wow, this looks, this is really good television. But some of the conversations we have about technique that at least seems to defy some of that, but hey, you know what part of cocktails are, is theater too. So, uh, you know. Oh, it definitely is. I'm actually having lunch with Ago Perone, who's an old friend of mine here in New York on uh, on Sunday. But the Connaught is amazing. And what I think you see with the Connaught is that it has become, in not that long, well, Ago hasn't been there all that long, 10, 12, 15 years maybe. Um, it's now appealing to consumers. So when you see those, you know, maybe it looks kind of cheesy, Instagram posts like they're, you know, playing musical instruments, but it's bar tools or they're on ladders pouring martinis. That ain't for you and me. It ain't, it's not inside baseball anymore. Right. Right. They're appealing to a massive consumer base and that's okay. It, it, trust me. It's okay. It is honestly, it's amazing. I will be there in person. This is a warning to anyone who works in the Connaught who might be listening. I will be there myself in about three weeks and it will cool. be my first part of call at the Connaught. But yeah, that's, that's the other thing. You start off being industry famous, and if it all works out, you become famous famous. Like Dead Rabbit, Clover Club, Connaught, they no longer need the accolades of the industry. They are what I like to call 100-year bars. I, I truly believe they will be around in 100 years. You know? Uh, Dead Rabbit is, you know, it's now a bar. It's expanding as a chain. It's a whiskey. They've got coffee. They've got Irish coffee glasses in Williams Sonoma and all this kind of thing. That's the dream. Yeah. This is the dream, I feel. And and you're right. And I, I appreciate you making that distinction of what does it mean when you are attracting people that wouldn't typically show up at a bar like that, but with that kind of billing and some wonderful flair, people who wouldn't typically go in for a cocktail go, Oh, I wonder what this is all about. And now that's how people like Jack suddenly do a million more in a year than they would have ever expected possible. Plus all the, the brand line extension to your point at that point as well. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's marvelous to see. And I'm way, way back about a million years ago when we still smoked in bars. I was a TGI Fridays bartender in the UK. And I remember saying to Sean and Jack from the Dead Rabbit, it's like, guys, you could be the next Fridays. You could be the next Applebee's or whatever. There could be a hundred open in 10 years. There could be a thousand open in 20 years, you know, because they, they have created a hundred year bar and they're currently building the machine, obviously to open uh, at least one and maybe even two, although probably not, at least one more branch this year, which is which is an amazing thing. And they've been very open. Like the place does... 25 million US American dollars a year in sales. And it's not that big. 
right? I don't know. Have you ever been there, uh, Chris? I, I have. Yes. Have yeah. you been, have you seen like the new extension? Great question. Uh, when I was there, I was there with my family uh, last fall, and uh, so we were pretty much only on the first floor. Now we were on like the other side of the main bar, but uh, I did not go upstairs or anywhere else. So no, I I didn't. No, really no, get you, to... you did see it then. Yep, that's and, what I thought. Yep. Yeah. No. 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 You're good. And I remember uh, Jack wasn't even living. Jack McGarry wasn't even living in the U.S., but John. Uh, Muldoon had come over and we're good friends. And they had originally wanted to put the location somewhere else. I think it was Jerry Thomas's old bar or uh, Harry Johnson's old bar, but they couldn't get the location, whatever. And this location down in the historic area of New York, because New York grew up from bottom to top, from the south to the top. Like Wall Street, there used to be a wall because that was the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam. And if you went above the wall, the Native Americans quite rightly killed you. So... This was one of the oldest parts of New York, which appealed to them. And the building was owned by one of the investors. And in the building had been a failed sort of 1950s burger bar. You know, they tried to do it retro, didn't work. And I walked through there with Sean. We walked through the whole space and looked around, looked downstairs, looked upstairs. And I was like, look, I think it's good. I think it's good. Like they were very, very picky about spaces. And he was telling me all about you know, all the tourist buses that come there and the people who come off the Staten Island Ferry and the walking traffic. I'm like, this all sounds good. This sounds amazing. And I looked through the, you know, being a genius like I am, I said, well, you know, you could do, you might be able to do $5 million a year now in this space. And now with having expanded the space by, let's say... 40% they're doing 25 million a year which is stunning yeah stunning and god bless them they're, they're they are the very best i was there uh just just a few nights ago for their 10th anniversary wow which is like jesus they grow up quick yeah so you said a a, a trigger term that i had uh, one also wanted to explore here uh just because i remember uh, and i mentioned this when we first talked I remember digging into Robert Simonson's proper drink and I'm however many pages in, not many. And I'm like, what the fuck? TGI Fridays. So, you know, you know, whatever way you care to care to share, what I liked was this idea that at a point in time, it seemed like when Fridays committed that they wanted to be this very appealing bar for young singles and whatnot. They even if their recipes weren't all perfect, they really committed a level of rigor to cocktailing at scale before anybody else, which kind of trained up a lot of people who were ready for that. So it, I remember that was the section you commented on, but like, tell us a little bit about that TGI origin story and what we owe them as a thank you at this point. Yeah, it's a wild story. And most of the main players and actors are alive. Like what you have to understand is that we think of all bars now, more or less, as singles bars. It's a place where uh, men and women can come to meet one another and have a drink. That's the very definition of a bar. As recently as 1965, that was not the case. Right? All around the world. There was restaurants, but I don't know if you've ever tried hitting on somebody at a restaurant. It's really hard. You've got to like throw a bread roll and shit, and people don't like that. 
That's why I can't go back to 11 Madison Park. Only kidding. <laughs> uh, there's bars, but they were bars by men for men. And how unwelcoming were they for women? Well, there was a tradition in America of having a piss trough at the bar. There would be a metal trough where you could just unlimber and pee rather than, you know, take a minute off drinking or whatever you were doing. W women did go into bars and many, many had actually started going into bars uh, because of prohibition. But in general, not welcoming places for women. And, you know, fancy Dan hotel bars, maybe, maybe. But, you know, those are very expensive. And an unemployed perfume salesman called Alan Stillman lived on the Upper East Side of New York, which coincidentally is where I live. And the Upper East Side back then was, a, like now, actually, a mix of mega rich people. Like, I, I, I have seen Michael Bloomberg on the subway, right? And working class people, because believe it or not, there's relatively reasonable rents up here. There's lots of schools and hospitals and, you know, the people who need to work in them. So, by the way, for any listeners, I am not mega rich. I'm in the other category. And so he saw all these young single women, and he was a young single man. Particularly, he saw a lot of what were then called stewardesses, what we would now call flight attendants. And back then, it was kind of like joining a nunnery. You had to be single, preferably qualified as a nurse. And if you worked as a stewardess, as it was then called, you lived in company housing. So there was like a Pan Am apartment block, and they were all on the Upper East Side because it was close to LaGuardia and close to what was then, I think, called Idle-Willed Airport, what's now JFK. So anyway, driven by his libido, uh, Alan opened a bar basically to meet women. And he opened it in a pub that had gone bankrupt, which is, if you think of it, it's a bit on the nose, right? Uh, he opened a very successful bar in a place that had not been welcoming to women on East 65th Street, if you're worried about it. And everything he did in terms of design, staff, drinks, service, everything was driven by the question, what would women like? So they had actual Tiffany lamps. They had lots of mirrors so women could fix their makeup. Initially, they had free drinks for women who were in groups without men. Uh, there was some darker stuff as well. Let's be very honest. It was a different sure. time. Sexual revolution, birth of the contraceptive pill, da 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 um, they nailed coins, quarters to the floor so that women would bend over to pick them up. And women habitually wore skirts and dresses back in those days. It was the Madman era. There yeah. was a phone booth. And the phone booth was on two, le two levels. You can explain to listeners later what a phone booth was. But uh, the idea was that you could look up a woman's skirt if she was in the upper uh, phone booth. And this revolutionized bars because the staff were told instructed it was a, a, a non-negotiable you have got to be nice to women because back then uh women were viewed as being shitty tippers right and they earned there was a far bigger wage gap then than now uh so bartenders overwhelmingly male uh ignored them or gave them bad service mm. Right. And Alan Stillman said, uh uh, we ain't doing that. And they also, by 1967, they had the first fresh fruit daiquiri program. 
in the US, they had blenders, the rotovaps of their day on the stations, you know, and they had like blueberries and strawberries. This was some wild shit, what they did. And it was incredibly successful, right? To give you some idea, within a year or two of opening, that original branch, which wasn't that big, and all your listeners have seen it because they filmed some of the scenes for the movie Cocktail in the original branch. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing where uh, Coughlin, Flanagan meets Coughlin, uh, the first bar, that was the original Fridays, hmm. right? So this bar wasn't that big. In 19, by 1966, if you worked five shifts, Wednesday through Sunday, brunch double, you would walk home with $1,966 in your pocket. Wow. Equivalent to, I don't know what, three grand now, maybe? Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can only, you can only guess what the actual financial numbers of the, uh, of the place were. And the more important thing is that Stillman invented the singles bar. A place where men and women could come and just have a drink and bump, you know, bump into one another and chat. They didn't have to sit at tables. They didn't have to eat. Women were safe. They cleaned up a lot of the more, let's say, misogynistic things like the quarters on the floor and stuff like that. And also, unfortunately, ladies, they did away with the free drinks for yeah, all right, female right, drinks. Right, Sorry right, about right. that. Yeah. Yeah. But... um. It, it revolutionized it. There's some debate if it was the first single bar in the world or if uh, that was a bar called Malachy's that was opened on the west side of Manhattan, the upper west side, by a guy called Malachy McCourt. who's a fascinating guy, the brother of Frank McCourt, the author of the book Angela's Ashes, made into a very successful and depressing movie. <laughs> and uh, Malachy uh, is still alive, still around. Um, it was an actor and a bon viveur and a raconteur so some friends asked him hey would you open a bar we'll invest in it you run it and it opened like the year before and Malachi McCord has a brilliant memoir of that time in New York called A Monk Swimming that's the name of it yeah recommend it to everybody out there and uh, he maintains possibly with good uh, grounds that Malachy's was the first singles bar, hmm. right? Because he was an actor and he attracted a lot of theatrical people and he wanted, you know, women, you know, he, he wanted to make something more like a pub back home in Ireland where everybody is, Malachy McCourt is Irish like me, uh, which, you know, in Ireland, everyone's welcome. That That's it. So, but that the, the cultural impact of inventing the world's first real singles bar and then exporting it and industrializing it. So, a lot of the credit has to go to the people that came after Stillman because he sold the business after about eight years. He only owned it for eight years and then went on to found Smith and Walensky's and several other mega, mega uh, places, which his uh, son Michael now runs and they run the quality organization, quality meets, quality eats, stupendous, great places. But when they began franchising to places like Texas and eventually to the UK, they got some senior bartenders to write manuals. And these were like the most extensive manuals ever written. And they formalized everything in them, how to, you know, how to talk to people, all the recipes. You, you had to know 468 recipes. You had to pass a cocktail test and score a 90. And if you failed, you could retake it. But then the pass rate was 95 wow. for 468 cocktails, many of which had 10 ingredients. 
Right. So that just taught you a degree of discipline and professionalism. And uh, Fridays in the U.S. quickly turned into a family restaurant. Outside the U.S., especially in the U.K., it remained the bar, right? And in many cases, it democratized cocktails. It took them out of the fancy hotel bars, and it meant you could finally get a good, goodish, you know, cocktail. You know, maybe it was a Lynchburg lemonade or an Uncle Vanya, but it could be a Sazerac as well, or a Martini, because we made all of those as well. Um, in in places like Europe and Eastern Europe, and you know, throughout Asia as well. And when the cocktail revolution really kicked off, which is what Robert Simonson's excellent book, A Proper uh, Drink, is all about, it really started around 1995. Right. And there were a lot in London, in England, and there were a lot of ex-Fridays people who had a hand in it. They were either ex-Fridays or they had been trained by Fridays people. A lot of the lieutenants of the late and legendary Dick Bradsell were ex-Fridays people. And he had... Dick, God bless him, had no speed or efficiency skills at all. He actually wrote a book, sorry, he wrote an article about how slow and sloppy he was at the height of his fame, which is another reason why he was a legend. But um, people like Wayne Collins, who, uh, my old friend who only passed the other day, uh, trained by an ex-Friday bartender, people like uh, Jason Crawley, ditto, people like um, John Gakuru uh, at the Lab Bar, all ex-Fridays. And it was sort of like the end of World War II, right? These, if you were Fridays in 2005, you were looked at like a Nazi, right? But you had kept the flame alive and you had skills most people don't see. Like you had to do a kitchen hygiene. You had to get a kitchen hygiene qualification, a HACCP qualification. This was, it was a lot, you know? And what we all did was just like, take off the braces and the red and white striped shirt put back on different braces and a black shirt and suddenly stir Manhattans and use rye whiskey instead of bourbon. And, uh, you know, so that was a, a big backbone. So Friday, Fridays, I feel, has given us a lot. And I suppose the definitive book and the definitive article on it has not yet been written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think to your point, like, you know, the key word you said there was discipline. You know, the discipline required by Fridays created like this easily translatable skill to like, oh, okay, now you want me to stir with this and not shake that or do, okay, perfect. I can, it was very, these people were ready to be molded in a way that was more dialed in uh, once, once people were ready. So. Yeah. All we had to do was change the recipes and not juggle bottles. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's, I don't know what's going on. That's where we're at now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, people, especially Americans look down at, Fridays. And I get it because I go to some Fridays and it's horrendous, you know? Right, right. But you can't hate a bear for being a bear. It's a family restaurant. It's, you know, it, it is what it is. It had a period of about a decade in the US where it was a wild, you know, all out cocktail bar. And then it became a family restaurant. You still see vestiges of it somewhere else. But the real uh, heritage of Fridays, you know, can be seen today in bars that you know, have taken its precepts and just like sort of put a, a fresh skin over them. Mm -hmm. So jumping forward a little bit, uh, something else I was curious. So like uh, last year, uh, so I'm 
newer to the industry. So I'm 40 now. I joined formally at uh, 38. Uh, so I, I I did it uh, one of those later in life uh, conversions, but I went to my very first tales last year and I saw that you were, I think you'd mentioned, but I got reinforced to me. So you were the first director of education for tales of the cocktail. Uh, first, Phil, did you approach them? Did they approach you? And, you know, Obviously, these are in part like decisions by committee, but when Tails really decided it wanted to start investing in education, were there things you felt were important that it take time to focus on? Or how did you approach that gig when you got into it? Well, I'll just give a one minute history of Tails for anyone who might not know. It's the largest cocktail festival in the world. And it started off when uh, uh, New Orleans entrepreneur, a native, Anne Sunderman, uh, her, I believe it was her sister or maybe her cousin worked in a famous restaurant in New Orleans. It's a very famous city for restaurants and cocktails. And she was talking about how in the summer, like July, August, it. in case you didn't know, well, you do know, you've been there. It gets hot down there, right? Most of the year, New Orleans is a paradise. It's convention central. Uh, it's fun. It's got sports stadia and the music and, you know, all that kind of thing. Cruise, cruise, cruise ship terminal. But in July and August, it's miserable. And she mentioned, like, working in hospitality, there's staff who, like, can't pay their bills because their income drops so much. You know, they have to limit themselves to one or two meals a day. That's how bad it was. So Anne had the idea of, of kind of trying to get people to come down to New Orleans and the first ever tells the cocktail is actually a walking tour. They walked around the French Quarter and, uh, you know, went into all the notable places like Arnaud's and the French 75 bar and Fritzel's and, and places like that. And then they went back to the Monteleon Hotel, the Carousel Bar, which, you know, rotates in a carousel. And they all had a cocktail. That was the first test. Within a few years, it had grown to be uh, a series of educational seminars that were held in hotel conference rooms, banquet rooms, that was a big step up because until that time, seminars really started at the London Bar Show. And uh, what it would be, somebody like me or Wayne Collins or Jamie Terrell or something would be on the stand of Balls or Plymouth Gin or Perno Ricard. And we'd, get, we'd set out some chairs and we'd have like a little microphone. But, you know, you're trying to yell over the stand of a, uh, a trade show. It was a bit of a mess, frankly. Tells us the first one where it was like a real seminar program you were in you know, conference rooms and you're sitting at a, you got, you got your own table, you got a little thing, you can get a tasting. It was, it was very professional, right? And I started going probably in year six, maybe. And uh, within a year or two, I was asked to be part of the seminar committee, which was basically a bunch of old dudes like me, uh, almost all dudes, almost all American, except me, and it was very simple back then. We'd sit around and think about, oh, you know, whiskey seminar. Oh, we should ask so-and-so. And we'd say, hey, would you do a seminar? And he'd say, sure, fine. And then hopefully he'd turn up about eight months later and have some kind of a seminar. That professionalized over the years. And we were all volunteering. And at a certain moment, they're putting on lots and lots of seminars. And we're all volunteering. And there's... You know, again, it comes back to my earlier thing about if you don't pay people. And I put together a proposal for uh, Anne Turnerman. I'm like, look, I think education is really important. 
Uh, I wouldn't do this full time. I'm not sure it is a full time job, but here's what I want you to pay me to be education director. Um, giving you a big discount. I did because uh, I like the work as well, but I want you to pay me so that I'm accountable to you. And also so that you take this set seriously. And that that's, uh, that's what happens. Uh, she said, yes. Now, Tails was subsequently sold. There was a bit of a scandal involving Anne, actually. Right. Um, it was sold. It's now in uh, different hands. But I, for continuity's sake, I ran it for a couple more years as education director before I bowed out. And currently, as far as I'm aware, there isn't one. But uh, yeah, that's how I got started in the gig. And it was like, it's, it was amazing because I set up committees, obviously. And I set up committees for different tracks, and we got to invent seminar concepts as well, like the series where you'd have three consecutive seminars on a topic on a single day. You could take a really deep dive. We set up the exclusive tastings, which were much more expensive, you know, $125 instead of 60. But then you're tasting literal unobtainium, stuff that you will never be able to try. It's extinct or it's a component you'll never get to try on its own or it was made specially for this thing. That kind of thing. And I would at least get to sort of look over all the hundreds of proposals every year from every corner of the globe and kind of take the temperature of the industry, as it were. I mean, it was a fantastic uh, job. I'm, I'm kind of glad my part of it's over now. And I enjoy going back to Tales to, uh, to see the seminars they're putting on now. Mm -hmm. You're obviously, you know, one, the industry has gotten bigger and, you know, broader, which is great in many ways, but, and you're not taking the temperature in the same way, uh, you know, in as focused of a manner, but is there a place you think the industry is right now? Also, I think it's probably time I'm going to grab my little pour that I brought here too. So are there other places you feel like the industry is right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, we have... A lot of young person, people in the industry, by definition, and we have a lot of older people in the industry, also by definition, right? Uh, and by the industry, I mean everyone who makes this stuff, everyone who sells this stuff, whether by the container or the pallet or the bottle or the shot. Um, I mean the PR companies and the warehousing companies. We got it all. Yeah. Right? But especially uh, younger people, and like every generation, uh, you see you see changes, you see massive societal changes. And we've all just been through the trauma that was COVID. And it's something we've collectively been through all around the world. Right. So we see a lot of focus on uh, things you wouldn't even think about 10 years ago, like diversity and inclusion and stuff like that. And one thing that I, I'm kind of, this is halfway between wishful thinking and something I've actually observed. Certainly, uh, when I was running things up until about 2019, um, online, everybody would always try to solve every problem in the world. Like, let's do a seminar at Tails. Like, that would solve everything, you know? Uh, and whenever we did put on seminars about, you know, generally on those topics, they were always extremely poorly attended you know and that frustrated me i didn't mind because it's the job of a big platform like tails to put on things that maybe aren't that well attended like we had the first i think ever mass tasting of clarin in the u.s right wow. clarins okay. that didn't 
really even exist as brands at the time and all had to be smuggled into the US in a suitcase. And now, as you probably know, Clarin is the new is the new Mezcal. So I didn't mind that so much, but it really rankled. Like one time, uh, tales kept starting earlier and earlier because people started going down to New Orleans earlier and earlier. And one time uh, we decided to do a sustainability summit. We'd kind of start a day earlier than normal for all the people that would be down there because there's almost as many people putting on events there as there are attending events. Right. There's the bartenders who are hired, the brand managers, the event people, the PR companies. You you know, you could almost do a separate sales for them. And that's kind of what we decided to do. So I uh, outsourced this uh, sustainability summit to two of the greatest experts that I know, uh, Claire Sprouse and uh, Chad Arnholtz. And they kind of were the education directors of that series of seminars. It's a whole day of seminars, right? And uh, at the same time, we put on a sexual assault prevention training. And I know this is going to sound conflicted when I say it, but these trainers made it one of the most uh, engaging seminars I've ever been to. Like they made us laugh as serious as the topic was. And there are a few that are more serious. Uh, They were absolutely top-notch trainers, right? And this seminar was free, right? It's a seminar workshop. And the sustainability seminar, you had to pay for, right? They were literally next door to one another in conference rooms. The sustainability summit was so packed that there were people sitting on the floor. And next door in the sexual assault prevention seminar, there were 25 of us Mm -hmm. in a room that could have fitted a hundred. Right. So the thing that I'm saying now that that was probably, I don't know, 2015, the thing now that I hear and to some degree that I see is that that's not the case. That people are actually doing the work to attend the seminars. Uh, they, they're watching them online. There's more seminars online now as well. And I think that's a good thing, right? I, maybe should be a policy. Actually, if you go to a Tales, or you go to an Imbibe Live in London, or you go to a bar convent Berlin, and you, you write your little thing. And if you're going to go to like five seminars, maybe you should set yourself a quota that one of them should be something along those lines. Even if you kind of don't like the sound of it, maybe, or it's a bit, oh, a bit of a bummer, you should probably do it. Like, you know, you should have two alcohol-free days a week, that kind of thing. But I got a question for you, Chris. Yeah. How was your first Tales? Yeah, you know, overall, it was great. It was overwhelming in terms of the amount of decision. Um, I I decided to go for the whole thing, and I never really, uh, I, I don't know, coming to it at this age or whatever, I never really fully tied it on. There was plenty of days where I was like, I felt I felt great, but uh, but I didn't have any nights where it was like burned all the way to the ground. And so but by the end of it, I was still like fatigued. But like the number of great conversations and like. I don't know, especially me still being relatively new, getting to see that more industry, more holistically uh, was cool. And, you know, I mean, having been always kind of quite the geek, it was wild to be able to walk down the street and be like, 
oh, there's Julie Reiner. Oh, there's Dale DeGrasse. Like all the people whose books I'm reading and, you know, hear about all over. It's like, it's kind of this weird, like visual tour of it. So uh, I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, it's a long convention. I already, for the sake of it, occurred to me like a week ago, like uh, I bought my plane tickets already. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to go for the whole time again, because I can't decide which part not to go to. So we'll just see if I take more breaks this year in terms of like, okay, I'm going to take today off or I'm going to whatever. But it was, uh, it was very edifying in a lot of ways. And I'm very glad that I went. So did you go to any seminars? Oh yeah. I went to plenty. Uh, Noah Rothbaum, his one on clarified milk. Like there was a point in the middle of it where I was like, I feel like I want to stand up and applaud. Right. It was so dorky and so funny that I was just like, this is, I remember when I walked in, I was like, oh my God, this is like a 90 minute talk on clarified milk. And by the end, I was like, don't like Bacardi had a food scientist there talking about like the, the, the milk curdling process, like at a molecular level. And I was like, boy, oh boy, this is super dorky and I love it. Uh, so uh, I also, I forget, um, I would, I would be remiss, struggle to remember his name. There's a Bacardi as a rep. His name's Colin. Um, and uh, Colin Asare. Oh, Colin Asarapio. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. He helped steward this uh, letters to a young bartender event. Mm -hmm. oh, and Marshall and I were both there. I was like, I was, it was, I'm glad I snuck into that one because uh, it was, uh, that was a tearjerker. It was great. It was great. So, uh, yeah, I definitely went to a, a number of seminars that were really enjoyable. Yeah, I mean, it's the seminars are what make it, in my opinion. And I would say that if I had no involvements at all, because there's just so it, it really it's mentally taxing. And as a, I don't know, 15 time veteran, I can assure you, it does not get easier. It actually gets harder. If you keep going back, you get even more invitations right. and you get to know even more bars and restaurants and places in new orleans so you you have more choice to be paralyzed by <laughs> and not less but to me the cornerstone of it is the education because you've got closed off rooms you got av you've got cocktail apprentices that will prepare the wackiest shit like they enjoy that challenge and they're trained for it right right so you can taste you know, I'll give an example. The you know a Nico de Soto cocktail. Nico's lovely; he's a friend of mine. But his cocktails are relatively complicated. Um, you will be able to sit there, and they will serve out sixty samples of a Nico de Soto cocktail as it's being discussed on the screen. And you know, there's certainly, in my opinion, there's this is the place to be nerdy. Like this is the place to do an exclusive tasting of rare aged Geneva, right? Or this this stuff called Clarin. This is the place. And everyone uh, who's in those rooms has paid to be there. Right. That's mega. You've paid $60 if you bought a pass. Uh, so the speakers know everyone really wants to be there. And that's a big difference to most other shows where the seminar is free. Right. And you can drift in or drift out. And, you know, that can kind of screw it for um, for the presenters. And in those shows, as great as they all are, the staff can serve samples and maybe they can like batch you a cocktail, but not on any uh, way close to the degree of sophistication that the cocktail apprentices can bring to it. Yeah, the cap, 
program was really interesting to kind of see unfold before me too. Um, so you said another word I wanted to, uh, so, uh, Geneva, when you talk about this, uh, so what we know is that despite that some people might say, uh, cause I love that it says this on the old Duff Geneva site. It's like, people say it's like gin. It's not like gin. So Phil, I would say it's probably, despite being a relatively old spirit, a relatively unknown. So what in the hell is Geneva and why in the hell are you making it? Because I guess apparently a lot of the Geneva that's for sale isn't really Geneva. So tell us about it. So you're absolutely right. Chris, Geneva is very, very misunderstood. And it's ironically uh, even misunderstood by the people it's historically most strongly associated with, which is the Dutch and the Belgians. So here's the short version. And I say this as an Irishman. In the beginning, whiskey was Geneva. Right? By which I mean the spirit that came to be called whiskey, Ishkabaha in Irish, the water of life, was unaged and it contained botanicals. One of the oldest recipes that we have for Irish whiskey, which is the first whiskey, um, was in a book called Platt's Delights for Ladies, which kind of sounds like a sex manual, but it was kind of, it was more of a guide for an aristocratic lady to manage her household. So it included food recipes and recipes for distilling, because that's, you know, the estates were kind of self-sustaining, very you know, Downton Abbey type of thing. And uh, to make the Ishkabaha, you got two gallons of distillate, which would have been from grain, and you added uh, four pounds of botanicals. It was things like fennel, licorice, and juniper, which is endemic to Ireland and Scotland and England, or at least it was. So unaged, hot still, grain spirit with botanicals. Sounds like Geneva to me. And what happened was, of course, as we know, the botanicals went out of uh, whiskey, and by the 1800s, they were aging whiskey in barrels on purpose for flavor. Before then, it was only put in barrels for transport, and they would pick the most neutral barrels that they had. So that's the best template by which to understand Geneva. I always say Geneva is unchanged, right? If you drink 100% malt wine Geneva, like this one, with the seal of ski down, it's like going to the zoo and instead of a picture of a dinosaur, they have a live T-Rex right there. Because Geneva never changed, except it did. There were all these Belgian and Dutch people living in London, obviously importing Geneva, drinking Geneva, making Geneva. And it all came to a head in 1689 when the Parliament of England, rather than allow a Catholic to become king, imported a Dutch prince from a separate royal family from Holland and put him on the throne, King William of Orania. And day one, page one of the King Manual is go to war with France, which he did. I'm surprised King Charles hasn't done it yet. And he banned all trade with France, of course, but he needed to keep the people happy. So what he did was he lowered the price of distilling licenses so it was as cheap as making beer. Uh, the thing is, English people didn't drink spirits back then. Not much. So suddenly everybody was allowed to make full strength booze. This, to put things mildly, did not work out well. 
And the problem with the British Empire at the time was all the distilling expertise was in its colonies of Scotland and Ireland, which were about as safe then as Afghanistan is now. Right. So they couldn't exactly go there and ask their colonized people, hey, how'd you do that? So they just tried to cover their mistakes because to make Geneva, you need to be able to make essentially really good whiskey and then just add a little bit of botanicals. And people didn't know how to do this. So they began adding 20, 30 times more botanicals, including juniper. Botanicals are cheap. And when the price of sugar dropped in the 1700s, they began using sugar to dulcify it much more as well. They were trying to copy the Dutch and Belgian Genevers, which is the best Genevers in the world, obviously. And they kind of fell short. And by 1830, an Irishman registered, didn't invent, but did trademark the first continual still. And they were able to switch from a pot still whiskey-like base to a column still neutral brace. And that was the birth of gin as we know it. And I love gin. Gin is great. But the relationship between gin and Geneva is like the relationship between Paris Hilton and her great-grandfather, Conrad Hilton. They're both members of the same family. They're both very successful entrepreneurs, but different. I think we can agree. I love, yeah, Paris versus Conrad. That's that's a distinction that's not drawn often enough right there. And for the very baseline, uh, for people out there who don't know this, so uh, Geneva in Dutch would mean juniper. That is the translation, correct, right there? Uh, well, it's a little more nerdy than that. So okay. glad I have you on the other end of this Zoom. So Fran French was the language of science in, in Europe for a very long time. So you use French terms. And Genièvre in French means juniper, juniper berry, right, specifically. Uh, Geneva in Dutch means the distilled spirit Okay, that's flavored with juniper berry. In order to say juniper berry in Dutch, you would have to say Genever Bess, juniper berry. Bess means berry. Okay. If you say Genever, which does mean juniper, in Holland or Belgium, you're actually referring to the spirit itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, all this confusion is one reason why, you know, it ceased to be the world's best-selling spirit, which it was for a very long time. And the last leg of the stool of confusion, if you will, is actually uh, the Dutch and Belgians themselves. So as you might imagine, having had their entire country destroyed in World War I, then Prohibition kicked off in the US, a very big market. Then World War II, which, like most sequels, was much worse than the original. Like, I, I used to live in Rotterdam for 17 years, and Rotterdam was quite literally bombed to the ground, you know, and, and then occupied for five years. Ho Holland really had it hard, as did Belgium. And everybody kind of emerged from the rubble in the late 1940s and 1950s, and were like, what the... Fuck. So everyone, distillers as well, is just trying to keep the lights on. And the slate had been wiped clean. Generations of Geneva drinkers had been killed. Export markets had forgotten about it. When David Embry wrote The Fine Art of Making Cocktails in 1948, he was a connoisseur of cocktails. And he actually wrote about that they, during the war, World War II, that America was getting its Geneva from the Balls Distillery in Buenos Aires the ruins of which I once visited, actually. And he said uh, it was not of the same quality and that he hoped 
they would start getting the good stuff from Holland uh, again soon. So the distillers in Holland and Belgium realized they could they they kind of had a chance here, and they began experimenting with more and more neutral alcohol. Now all Geneva was a hundred percent malt. Uh, malt in terms of Geneva is called malt wine. It's not made from grapes. There's no wine in there. Uh, but 100% malt wine like this. This is what conquered the world. It's what Jerry Thomas mixed with and all that kind of thing. By the 1880s or so, they had begun to adopt the column still and added neutral alcohol, making a luxury blend, right? The Geneva equivalent of Johnny Walker Blue. Like it would be maybe, you know, 70, 80% malt wine like this. And post-World War II, they began experimenting with less and less malt wine, you know, from 70 to 60 to 50 to 40 to 30. And they went all the way down. They went down to a couple of percents of malt wine. So essentially, they were selling vodka, right? I like to say the Dutch invented vodka before you could get vodka in Holland. And this was so different, so radically different in flavor that they had to differentiate it from the existing Geneva. So they began calling the existing Geneva, old Geneva, and this new style stuff, new Geneva, right? Or young right. Geneva, no aging. Geneva was never traditionally aged, but no difference in them all. It's just new style and old style. And this new style took off. To this day, new style Geneva, the vodka, if you will, is 98% of all the Geneva consumed in Holland. Wow, okay. right? But because this, it has been so, it's almost killed off its parents, you know, very eatable. Um, if this has been going on since 1950, right? So you need somebody who's like 90 years old in Holland who remembers the old stuff. Because if you ask even a 40 year old Dutch person now, they're like, oh no, Geneva's shitty. It's this shitty, cheap stuff. You drink it when you're young, when you're a student. Like you, Geneva drinker in Dutch is almost synonymous with alcoholic. Wow. Okay. So even that's, that's the, that's the problematic thing. If you're a bartender and you get a couple of Dutch people in and you're like, Oh my God, I've got, I've got this amazing Geneva. It's called Old Duff. Would you like to try yeah, a cocktail? And they're like, fuck no. It would be like trying to sell bourbon to an American 10 or 20 years ago. They wouldn't want to know. They want right. a single malt. Right. And so, yeah, because that makes me think a little bit of the analogy people talk about, like, you know, prohibition comes. It's like, in addition to like the lore of the speakeasy, it's like, oh, bartenders left the field. They forgot. Uh, they left the country. And so we just also in part forgot how to make drinks. Plus then the industry was like, hey, how about sweet and sour mix? But that's a whole other thing. So to that point, enter Irish dude in Holland who says, I'm going to bring back Geneva. And so that kind of in part led you and the distiller, what you're working with Phil is like from like 1777. I remember cause it was like 1776 plus one. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about like your uh, insane uh, decision to uh, launch your own brand. Yeah, it was really stupid. But then again, I used to own a bar as well. So there's <laughs> that. What it was, uh, I had moved to Holland. I was a rock and roll bartender traveling around the world, bartending in London, the Cayman Islands, Dublin, and then Holland for quite a stint. And this cocktail thing got going 
post-1995 in, in London. And I had lived there at that time. And everybody, the spirits companies as well, wanted to know how to make these new hip cocktails, which were actually old recipes, right? And you got to bear in mind, there was no internet. You know, there was internet, but most people didn't have it. It was very slow. You know, it was dial-up. Uh, the books were all shit. There was very few good books. And there were no trade shows. Tales didn't exist. Bar Comfort Berlin didn't exist. Uh, London Bar Show didn't exist. So if you wanted to learn this thing, you either literally had to get in a plane and go to London, or you had to be in a room with somebody like me who who knew about this, this magical thing. So I was doing seminars, traveling over, all over the whole world. And uh, one of my clients uh, that was very heavily invested in bartending cocktails was Balls, the uh, liqueur, well, for most people, it's the liqueur company from Holland. Obviously, it's a Geneva maker too. So Balls are the Jack Daniels of the Geneva world. They they dominate it. They you know choke out everything else. And they never asked me to talk about Geneva at all. But I'd be going around the world trying to make people realize that Balls Blue is the best blue liqueur in the world. And they couldn't get Geneva. So, I, I mean, I mailed bottles of Geneva to Dave Wondrich when he needed them for research in his book Imbibe. I brought a bottle of Geneva and I gave it to uh, Dushan Zarek the first time I met him in Employees Only in 2006 and so on and so forth. And one day, the Balls Company said to me, it's like, hey, Phil, we're going to make a Geneva. Um, do you want to be part of the you know, discussion group? And I sat in the group and their first idea was to make a young Geneva, a new style Geneva. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop you all here. I was the only non-Dutch person in the room. I'm like, this, like, if you make a Geneva, because they already made lots of Genevas, right? They wanted to bring one internationally. And I said, look, it's Geneva. It's almost certainly going to fail. So let's make it fail in a way that makes the rest of the portfolio look amazing. And everyone's like, yeah. And then I'm like, let's make it stronger. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, old school bartenders. And they're like, yeah, I'm killing it. This is amazing. So I got to help create uh, Balls Geneva. I was on the uh, tasting panel. I was on the marketing team. I even wrote the text for the back of the label. Everything except the pregnancy warning. Wow. And uh, and, and you know, helped to launch. That was, that was great. You know, it's lovely. I and I would, I, I love Balls Geneva. You know, if I only had to drink that for the rest of my life, I'd be a happy man. But there were two things that disquieted me uh, as we were making it. One was I learned that nobody made anything in Holland anymore. I'd never really thought about it. But I learned that again in post World War II, all the Geneva companies got into these massive price wars in the 1970s because they were all selling vodka essentially right and a distillery isn't that expensive to actually set up compared to how expensive it is to keep it running basically you need it to be busy every day right so every big company in holland balls de kuiper rutte hoogheids all of them stopped distilling and hilariously, they all outsourced distilling to the same distillery, Filiers, which is in Belgium, right? And just as long as they truck it over the border and bottle it in Holland, they can say made in Holland. And they, you know, and they all lie like bastards. They all have nice people wearing leather aprons, pretending to be the distiller. And I, even by then, and we're talking 2008, I'm like, look, this lying thing, we had a good run. We can't do it anymore, Right. So that was one thing I thought could be done better. And the other thing was the CEO asked me before we launched, and the launch was the US in New York. He said, Philip, have you given any thought to what the wholesale price should be? 
And I had not given a single thought to that. And I told him. And he said, well, how about $40 a bottle? Like the price that a bar would have to pay to buy a bottle. And I said, it seems expensive. Where does $40 come from? And this guy looked at me and he said, that's what Grey Goose costs. So Balls Geneva in the Grey Glass bottle that I'm sure you know, launched at a $40 wholesale price. And everybody adored it and nobody could put it on a cocktail menu because it would have fucked their liquor cost. So that was two things that I thought I could do better. I thought I would go completely the other way. So uh, I found the oldest continually operating, actually continually operating distillery in Holland, the uh, Hermann Janssen distillery in Schiedam, family owned and run for, it's now eight generations since 1777. We started creating Old Duff Geneva in 2015 with uh, Dick Janssen, the old CEO, and about two years ago, he passed operations on to his son, Diederik, who is now the eighth generation. I mean, it's a distillery next to a canal opposite a windmill. It doesn't get older than that. The windmill, which we use to mill the grain for Old Duff, uh, is from 1785. It's just about the oldest, tallest operating windmill in the world. And the first step, if we want to make more Old Duff Geneva, is to look at the weather and find when there's going to be a windy day, right? Because it's literally driven by the wind. It's the wind and a crankshaft and a load of rocks that mills the grain. There's nothing electronic or digital involved in making Old Duff until you get to the um, the bottling line. It's wild. It's wild. And I thought, look, this is the thing. This is this is the way to do it. I wanted to make the Del Maguey Mezcal of Geneva's old school as they come, uh, completely transparent about production methods, 100% aimed at bartenders, giving back to bartenders. You know, we donate a dollar a bottle, which is more profit than we make otherwise, uh, to bartender charities like the USBG Emergency Fund. And just make Geneva a staple again. Make Geneva great again. Get it on every back bar. Make sure when people open a bar, there's a Geneva on the opening order, even if it's not mine, you know, get the classic cocktails back on the menu, like the Martinez, but get people creating cocktails as well. Like there's an incredible hot Geneva cocktail at Valerie in New York. There's an amazing mashup of a hanky panky and a Martinez downstairs at Madame George. You know, there's a incredible drink called the Winter Julep at Young Joni in Minneapolis, which kills it. Those guys are doing it. And just get it get it back in the rotation. We've lost so much, Chris, you know, and I'd be just as happy to see more Aquavit back in the bars and a host of other uh, things that we've sort of let fall by the wayside over the years. So you have two products on the line right there. Um, you know, since most people, and you say to your point, like this is really targeting bartenders, but if I happen to be on the site or if I was um, in a retail store that happened to carry it, if I'm looking at those two bottles, Phil, in addition, just open it up and having a sip like you're enjoying right now, what else, is there a way to think about general profiles for those two bottles right there? I should, you should use this one more, Martinez, Martini, this one more, Manhattan, or 
I don't know if if they conform to templates, but should people think about those in any line in terms of sipping them and using them in drinks? Yeah, I mean, look, if if you're if you're even thinking about Geneva, you've already passed the weirdo test. So thank you, welcome to my world. Right, you are the person who you know eats the local food when you go somewhere. Regardless, you know, you go to the food trucks in Singapore. You eat the blowfish in Japan. You are one of those people, mm-hmm. right? We are not going to scratch the golden egg of Tito's vodka anytime soon, right? So you're already adventurous. And everybody comes at it in different ways. The, the strange thing about starting a brand is it's very much like opening a bar, which I also did. I founded Door 74 Bar in uh, Amsterdam, which is the first ever Dutch bar to be in the world's 50 best bars. And you have all sorts of ideas about your bar. And then you open the bar and the customers tell you what works and what doesn't. The same is true for brands. Um, I thought, so this is as close as you can get to drinking Geneva from not just the 1800s, but the 16 and 1700s, right? It's two thirds rye, one third barley, five day fermentation, all the grains go in the pot still, not just the fermented liquid. Three times distilled, then a little bit of juniper, a little bit of hops. So this, if you like whiskey, especially rye whiskey, this is really interesting, right? And I think and, and, it's- and do, you, and do you mind calling it the name of that bottle just for the sake of it? And I'll yeah, put so that this in the is, you, you, you can see it. it's the 100% malt wine. Okay, perfect, thank you. All right, there we go. There's only three in the world that can carry this paper label over the top called the seed of Skida, meaning it's made exactly like it was more than 100 years ago. Uh, If you're not a whiskey drinker, the way to approach this might be in a gourmet boilermaker. I am a huge fan of this. I will will die on the hill of gourmet boilermakers. It combines beautifully with a chocolate nitro stout or a colch. Now, the other one is essentially the first one that's been cut with neutral alcohol, right? It's got 53% of the same malt, two-thirds rye, one-third barley, and the rest is neutral wheat alcohol, also from Holland. And we've expanded the botanicals. This reflects what Geneva was from its birth sometime around the 1400s up until about 1880. And this represents is what Geneva became when they started using neutral alcohol. So this brings it up to date. Okay. And a Martinez with this stuff is great. The Martinez is, of course, the parents of the Manhattan and the grandparents of the Martini, right? So which is to say two parts of sweet vermouth, one part of 100% malt wine Geneva, maybe a spoon of maraschino or possibly curacao. A couple of dashes of bitters, stir, strain, up, cherries, and a lemon twist. Uh, This one makes, quite simply, the best Collins in the world. A vodka Collins is delightful. A gin Collins is delightful. A whiskey Collins is delightful. I will put an Old Duff Geneva, and if you make it with Old Duff Geneva, for obvious reasons, it's a Phil Collins. Uh, I will put... 
a Geneva Collins up against any other Collins. It just sings. And, you know, as, as you know, it's a, a Collins is just an alcoholic lemonade. That's all it is. It's the easiest drink in the world. It's the ultimate entry-level drink. And as a gourmet beer pairing, this green bottle, I really recommend it uh, as a shot with uh, an IPA for IPA drinkers or a Saison beer, like a farmhouse ale. Now that, that that's helpful. I mean, obviously this is for me, but um, and and you know this, you know, with education being at the forefront. But it's like I feel like people go to a liquor store, they buy a bottle, and they're super excited, and they get home, and they're like, "Now what?" And some people just don't have the programming to at least know how and where to start with a thing. So that's that that's definitely helpful, right? There. Yeah, but you're you're doing the Lord's work here, Chris, because you know there is an insurgent movement. Like cocktails have gone mainstream. You can get amazing cocktails in the most unlikely places. Um, last year, I was in Glasgow Airport, right? And I was flying to Stockholm in Sweden. And Glasgow Airport's not even the big airport in Scotland. And there was a Weatherspoons. I don't know if you know what Weatherspoons is. It's this huge chain of... Um, Wait, was it even a Weatherspoons? Maybe it was an all-bar one. But anyway, it was a, a kind of a cheap and cheerful pub chain in England. And they have cocktail lists and they make porn star martinis and whatnot. Right? And this is the one in the airport. The airport bars are always kind of shit. And usually the reason is that all the staff have to get background security checks to work in airports. I wouldn't pass a background security check. And maybe you wouldn't either, Chris. I noticed you're smiling. But yeah, so for no reason, for no fault of their own, uh, airport bars are maybe not great. You know, there's other reasons too. And um, they had an, a, a Woodford Reserve popcorn old-fashioned. And I'm like, look, worst case scenario, it's going to be sweet whiskey. And by the way, it was lunchtime. I got a fucking amazing, beautifully presented Woodford Reserve Old Fashioned with a little clothes peg clipping a little cornet of popcorn on the side of the glass. Like 10 years ago, that would have won Diageo World Class. Yep. And I'm having it in the shitty airport of Scotland. Yes. In, frankly, a shitty bar. That's yep. how good things are. We are... Killing it. There's a world of podcasts. I mean, I, I hate to say it. We have almost too many amazing books now. Yep. Every yep. time somebody writes a great book, either they send me a copy or I have one. And I have a I have a stack you don't even want to know. And they're all brilliant. You know, we have cocktails on TV. We have, you know, Dave Wondrich on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Uh we're making a difference. And like, there are people going into liquor stores in Minneapolis and New York and London and Amsterdam and Hong Kong and Copenhagen and Stockholm. And also, and they're buying old Duff Geneva. Right. And I, I think what happens is that they read about it. They read a punch or a vine pair or a timeout. They watch a uh, Chris Lebeau podcast. They, it, it, it's in there. It's cool to know yep. about spirits and cocktails the way in the 1980s it began to be cool to know about cuisine and wine right and they're seeking it out like during the 
COVID lockdown. Do you know what um, Shaker and Spoon is? I do. Yeah, they're, they're the home delivery service right there. They like package things up together. Yep. Yeah, so they send you cocktails. I think they send you the booze as well, or maybe you have to buy the booze. I'm not quite sure how it works. Yeah, I forget. Uh, I think, uh, what's it? I know Southern Teague, I think, has some stuff going on with them. But yeah, I forget. I'm sure it depends on what state you're into, just because some states are just still like uh, like Kansas adjacent to where I am. They're they're just like, Kansas is like, you can't move this. If you, I, it's Some of the laws are still so crazy intense prohibition hangover but yeah so yeah. shaker and spoon deliver cocktails and ingredients and whatnot across america yep. and when covid kicked in uh in march 2020 they had a facebook group right and you know people shared recipes and took photos you know facebook group. there's a couple of thousand members by the summer it had swelled to something like seventeen thousand members right because everyone was stuck at home all the bars and restaurants were closed and they started making cocktails, right? And they would adopt books. So it's it's great that you mentioned Souther. They adopted Souther Teague's book, I'm Just Here for the Drinks. And Souther's a friend of mine and also a great supporter of Old Duff Geneva. And there's several Geneva cocktails in there with Old Duff. In fact, I met the editor for the book once and he said, oh, wait a second, you're Philip Duff? I had to talk Souther down. Like initially it was like eight cocktails. With old Dolph, I had to talk him down to like four. And all these people, I like to use the word cocktailian, which was coined by the great late Gaz Regan. These are cocktail savvy consumers. Right. You know, and just like, you know, if you're cooking, you want that special butter, you want that special salt, you yep. want the knife that you saw Anthony Bourdain use. Well, these people aren't going to settle for anything less. They want old Dolph Geneva. Yep. Right. And this is a, this is a, it's an amazing thing, not just for me and not just for the Geneva category, but it's great for everybody. And, you know, in some countries, you got to wiggle around distribution and whatnot. Are you available here? Are you available there? But in general, I, I think this cocktail golden age is going to run and run. It's going to take like an asteroid strike to kill it off because it's been running in my world really since 1995. And that means, that people who weren't born in 1995 are F&B managers now. Yes, they are. Right? This is amazing stuff. And the people who were F&B managers then are like hotel regional directors. So, you know, good times. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point, it's um, regularly when I'm doing classes or whatever, I still run into people who... You know, when I'm still giving them their first ever real daiquiri or non-shitty old-fashioned. And like, to your point, those are the people who like, uh, through a friend, a class, whatever, that, you know, that's suddenly when they're suddenly curious. And so like, oh, what's this Connaught bar to go back to the other comment right there? Like, there are still people coming into the fold all the time. And like, you know, food a la Alice Waters and all these people has got, you know, 20 years on cocktails and so when people ask about it it's like we're still catching up to where food is and food isn't done on its run right now so it's like yeah you you see lots of uh fits and starts and whatever but it feels like we're certainly on a one-way train uh right now so uh yeah yeah 
That's booming. I mean, I don't know if you follow the actual industry. And if you don't, I've got a seminar for you. But uh, every year, for the last 20 years, at least, uh, spirits, as a what's called a share of throat, what people consume, spirits grow about 5 to 8% a year, and wine and beer contract about 5 to 8% a year. In fact, at one stage, my wife worked for the elite ZX division of the world's largest beer company, right? AB InBev. And they actually had, within her division, two separate teams. One was called Spirits Attack, and one was called Wine Attack, to try and claw back a bit of market share. Like, it is going off. Like, like what's happening, like spirits have been kind of rejuvenated, reinvented, saved, whatever, by cocktails and craft. Yep. And that, of course, that happened to wine years ago. Yep. Right. And it happened to beer years ago. So what I'd like to say to everybody is uh, if you want to know what's going to happen in spirits and cocktails, read beer books from 10 or 20 years ago. I'll drop a couple of names now. Um, one of my favorites is uh, Beer Blast by uh, Philip von Munching. And it's a lovely story. It kind of ties into uh, culture in a way. Uh, so von Munching's great-grandfather was actually a steward on the liners that used to cross the Atlantic. These weren't cruise ships. These were transports, right? Because you didn't fly. And at one stage, there was a Heineken executive who was going to the U.S. to try and get a distributor for Heineken. And the crossing, it must have taken a couple of weeks back in the day. And he was really impressed by the steward, who was the bartender. The guy spoke English. He was charming. He knew about beer. And by the end of the voyage, he said, hey, look, I'm supposed to be coming here for a find a distributor. But how about I just slide you a few bucks? You get off the boat. And you be the distributor. And the dude's like, all right. And the Van Munching family were the distributors, the exclusive distributors of Heineken in the USA for almost a century. And this is written by the great, great grandson. And what's interesting about that is it wasn't just like, you know, Heineken in the USA. Heineken was the first premium import. They didn't just build Heineken in the USA. They built premium beer. And this book, which is, I don't know, it's 20 years old now. It's not even easy to get hold of. Uh, this book is eerie in how it goes through, you know, uh, working with distributors, the rise of craft beer, you know, combating that, even just literally down to how you go into a bar. It's amazing. And there's another one which was recommended by my buddy, Greg Benson, who's now one of the hosts of the Speakeasy, po uh, Speakeasy podcast on Heritage Radio Network. And Chris is a mega, mega, uh, sorry, Greg is a mega, mega beer guy. And he recommended to me, it's the story of Goose Island beer, which you might know. And you might guess from the title how it kind of works. The, the book is called Barrel Aged Stout and Selling Out. Right. So Goose Island started off as this like rebellious insurgency, mega quality. And eventually they sold to AB InBev, which is everyone's dream. Who doesn't like money? I like money. Do you like money? Yeah, everyone likes money. But along the way, this book details your path 
to to growth, to getting your product in more hands, dealing with distributors, being screwed over. Like for everyone in the spirits industry, read beer industry books. I suppose I would just add one more thing is that uh, having lived in Holland for 17 years, I actually know the Nolette family who founded and own the Kettle One Vodka very well. I know the father, uh, senior. I know both the sons, Carl and Bob. And it was very heartening to, to see after they sold the brand to Diageo, Kettle One Vodka became known as a premium. Right? And Nolette Senior was being interviewed and people said, oh, are you worried that Diageo are going to dumb it down? Da, 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 da. So he said, look, we actually never set out to make the world's best luxury vodka. We wanted to make a vodka that was in every bar in the world. And this is the deal that will get us there. So if you believe in your brand, you want it to be in more hands, right? And that's what they achieved. This idea of that there's some kind of value in staying small, it's kind of like music, you know? Oh, we're very big in Belgium. And I was like, oh... It's like, yeah, but you know what? I've been to a Springsteen concert. He was pretty awesome. You know, quality's quality. So I kind of like, as, as you probably can tell, I'm a, a little bit of a contrary person. But as as a brand, you want more people to experience your brand. It's not. It's not. E eventually, it's not even about money or personal enrichment or stuff. You want more people, and more people will tell you what they want differently about us and all, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I remember I got under the beer train fairly early and uh goose Island was great. And yeah, there was an interesting story about like, Oh, who are, who were, what are they then versus now? But um, they are certainly an Epic story. Like that bourbon County stout stuff is nuts. Um, oh yeah. No, you, you would love this book. I think Chris. I will. I'll, I'm going to definitely look it up. Shout out to Greg Benson. Um, everyone should subscribe to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. That's right. Not That's least right. because I get a shout out because me and Soda Teak went to a dinner on Tuesday where it was all cooked meat and there was no cutlery. Wow. Okay. Heck yeah. You know what a beefsteak is? Uh, you know, I feel like I'd say yes and then I'd just tell me. I know, I know it sounds silly. I only know about it because they had had one at Tales of the Cocktail uh, a few years ago. So back in the day, you know, there was all these associations for for working men, basically. You know, so you wouldn't get crushed because there was no employee protection and unions and whatnot, especially in America. And beefsteaks started off as political fundraisers, right? You would pay a set fee and you'd sit around on beer crates and they'd put like cooked meat on a barrel and you would eat it with your hands, right? And everybody would wear an apron and you'd wipe your hands on your apron. And, you know, this evolved to being a charitable thing as well. If somebody uh, needed help, as, as Dave Wondrick said on Tuesday, there was no GoFundMe, you threw them a beefsteak. And the beefsteak would be, you know, there'd be like various toasts to people, more, you know, it's kind of a, a cross between uh, uh, a carnivorous orgy and a roast, right? And there's an incredible historical place since, what, 1870-something restaurant in Brooklyn called Gage and Tolner, which was rejuvenated 
by a group that includes someone I'm proud to call a friend of mine, the world's foremost Charles H. Baker Jr. scholar, Sinjin Frizzell, also the founder of Fort Defiance Bar in Brooklyn. And they threw, they they, they advertised a beefsteak. And Southern Teague from Amoria Margo, who's a good friend, he immediately texted me, he's like, you in? I'm like, I'm so in. <laughs> and so we went there. And it was it was obvious it was probably the fanciest beefsteak that has ever taken place. <laughs> Fortunately, we, we did not have to sit on beer crates. We're upstairs, we've got like embossed aprons, and we've got little hats that make us look like car hops or soda jerks and shit. But we got George Dickel and Leopold Brothers Manhattans. Um, because I was nice to the bartender, I got a neat pour as well. And unlimited Brooklyn Brewery beer. God bless him. Garrett Oliver was there. And Dave Wondrich to explain it to us. But yeah, me and Souther were there. And it's like, it's unlimited, delicious sliced tenderloin and lamb lollipops. And it's all served on little triangles of brioche toast. And for all the listeners out there, if you do get invited to a beefsteak, and Gage and Tolner plans to hold more of them, so please come on down. Um, the etiquette is that of course you never eat anything except protein. So you stack up those little triangles like Jenga, right? And whoever <laughs> has the highest uh, stack at the end of the evening is the alpha male of the triangle. <laughs> and and is the marker of who will have the worst uh, meat sweats, as they call it, that night later on. So, uh, but that's a uh, that sounds like a magical night. Right and it's there. keto. <laughs> this is true. This is true. You you are. <laughs> You're now on 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 the cutting edge diet world right there. Yeah. No, it was it was marvelous. That sounds like it. Phil, I'm sure we could probably do this for hours more. I know you have to be somewhere in a bit. Is there anything we haven't covered you wanted to talk about? Otherwise, I'm sure we could do this again sometime. Anything else you wanted to talk about today? Uh, actually, I want to have a question for you, Chris. What's the most common thing that comes up? Uh, either you ask it or it comes up organically when you have people on the podcast because i've just started my own podcast we're up to 11 episodes so we've beaten the odds but i'm nowhere near where you are and i know that you interview people and you have questions and you talk to people you know roughly yep. from the same universe but if you had to say there was a single unifying sort of theme what would it be you know so i think for me the goal especially i mean i, I mean this uh very genuinely you are very easy and delightful person to talk to. But for some people, I feel like, hey, you're just getting to know them. And so to me, um, you know, one, whether they're coming from the spirits or, you know, from working behind the stick, like their, their experience can be different. But I like to take people out of the moment in a way and ask them, uh, you know, if there was a moment that they, that they kind of remember falling in love with or committing to the industry. Uh, and I figured coming to, into today's conversation, I kind of wanted to lead with like what kind of has you still inspired. But the unifying factor is, God, I, I feel like I I remember listening to an interview with Malcolm Gladwell, and he said the people who do the offer the best toasts most of the time prepare prepare more for them. Not that you can't speak genuinely from the heart, and so I feel like. I try to do my homework and that often determines 
where an interview might start and where it might go. But of course, the best interviews end up going somewhere you never expected to. Um, so I don't know if that answers your questions, but I I try to dig heavily into my guest background to understand, like, I have someone like you today who has a, a very, not only a, a broad, but long history, like, live view of this. What do I want to know from them? And I tr- that, that at least is my approach so far well you did say something i'm gonna i'm gonna pin you down on it now when did you fall in love so can you remember i I do yes um so while i had been i think circling around it for a while uh the first real craft cocktail bar for lack of a better term that landed in st louis uh doesn't exist anymore but was uh uh, our city's hottest chef at the time, still very popular. His name is Gerard Kraft. He had a, a restaurant called Niche. And while I think there was other branding around it, you know, Phil, it was he found a guy who had all the right training and he basically invited him to start like a dignified holding spot, you know? Uh, so, like, what I mean is, is like he put in the bar next to the restaurant that the line was coming out the door for. And when I went to the original taste by niche, it was just, it was so counter to every other experience. Sure. I'd been in bars with great scotch and whiskey selections, nice lighting, nice decor, but I had never seen cherry herring employed before. I'd never seen a blood and sand before. And so for me, that was this moment of like, what, what is happening right here? And so to me, it was it was the first moment that it really felt I'd I'd been a part of the the glowy martini phase, you know, but I'd never before seen something treated with such care. And it really pulled on me in a way that became um hard to ignore. Yeah. And so that was 2010 for me, was when I kind of really had my first experience, I would say. That's so cool. And for anyone listening, if you're a bartender and you want to open a bar or you own a bar, um, one of the most important things about having uh, a bar that takes reservations or is a speakeasy or whatever is, you need to either own the waiting bar next door (laughs) or have a very good relationship with them, right? Because you can't, it doesn't matter, Death & Co., PDT, Attaboy, you can never accommodate all the people. It's a small place, you know? So the best thing is actually to own the basic bar nearby that they will go and wait in. Yeah. My business partner in my bar, Door 74 in Amsterdam, owned the bar on the corner, which is also a very nice place. And you could go and, and, and hang out there and wait until it was your time. And in terms of what you said, yeah, that's how in, if a restaurant does that, then you get exposed to stuff. And you get exposed to a seriousness and a, a love and a craft. Because you might think about bars as just places, you know, dark holes where people get drunk and all that. Bars, in general, don't have the best PR. Although, that sounds like an amazing place to me. But, <laughs> I mean, I can tell you my origin story. I grew up in a very small town, 5,000 people on the seaside of uh, Ireland, north of Dublin. And... My first summer job was picking potatoes, which was actually very lucrative. If you could pick uh, a ton a day, which was doable, 
um, you made 80 pounds. So if you did that every day, you made 400 pounds a week, which was a, that was a good wage back then. You could, you could live in your own apartment for that, you know, in let's say 1984 or something. Uh, there were adults who did it, but it was also extremely difficult work. And there was an incredible cocktail bar in my hometown. It was actually mm. a copy of only the second ever TGI Fridays in the world. The owner's son had gone to Texas and seen what was then only the second TGI Fridays in the world and brought it back and copied it perfectly. So I was hired there and trained there and I became the only person who'd ever worked there who actually went on to work for Fridays. And then later they hired me to come back and train the staff again. But I walked in and I'm like, I love this. It's dark and there's shiny bottles and there's people dressed up and they're talking. You know, because I come from a working class background. My parents barely drank. My mother never drank. Um... We went to a restaurant twice a year. We had my entire youth. We had two foreign vacations, which, you know, we drove, got the ferry to England and went to my auntie's house. You know, nobody spoke a foreign language. I was the first person in my family to go to college. So suddenly I'm in this other place and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this, <laughs> you know, and it seduced me. Maybe a little more than it should have, but uh, I still, I, I can almost, I can almost feel myself into remembering the first time I walked into that space, and I'm like, yeah, this is it. And we're talking, this is a while back. <laughs> but, I, but I think to that point, and you know, you hear it invoked, but I remember, you know, I've heard you mention him before too. But when I read Steve Grass's book and um, talked with him. So, you know, the key to a great brand and a bar as a brand is to transport people out of the present moment. And you could take them someplace very far away. It could also be just a little step. But the, but the whole goal is, is that when it becomes that emotional experience, you remember the feeling of that bar, you know, the way that drink looked and made you feel, these are the things that really stick with us and can really end up shifting how we end up experiencing these things. Yeah. Well, if you go into a bar, you're going to experience a brand via the bartender. Could be good or bad. But if the bartender, you know, we live in an expertise-based world, right? Everybody generally now in big, well, most of human life, we all live in big cities now. There are more people who live in cities than don't live in cities all around the world. We passed the threshold 10 years ago. So most people are experts in a thing. Right? Yep. Whereas as recently as 20 or 30 years ago, a lot of men were, you know, fairly adequate carpenters. Right? Women could bake bread and, and do things that are only being rediscovered now. But we're all specialists now. You know, you're not just a lawyer. You're a real estate lawyer. You're not just a hedge fund guy. You do this. So... It's interesting to look at the fact that in, in free time, people love to develop particular, let's say, connoisseurships. And, and cocktails and spirits are the latest in that line. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And they love to come in. If you walk into Valerie or 11 Madison Park or La Devozione or the Connaught in London or Young Joni or uh, Balderdash in Copenhagen or Dutch Courage in Amsterdam, you know, you sit down, you can have a conversation, but you expect the person of expertise and, and, and you accept their expertise. You enjoy it because it's not threatening you. If you're a real estate lawyer, it doesn't matter if this guy knows more about Geneva. It's just such a nice thing. And I actually, I preserve that because I try not to learn too much more than I know about beer or wine. The joke is so that I can drink them in the Olympics. But the reason for me maintaining my amateur status is I want to approach them like a consumer. So I understand how consumers see them. The ship has sailed for booze. Every every bar I walk into, every liquor store, it's like I have a, a virtual reality overlay. It's like overpriced, underpriced, shit, boom, boom, boom. That's made there. It's made here. Like, I, I'm I'm done. Yep. I can't do it anymore. It's like, I imagine it's like this if a, if a comedian watches another comedian. They can't enjoy it like you or me because... They're either like, this guy's killing it. And they're seeing things you and me can't see. Like a DJ hears things they can't see. Like, have you ever been on a photo shoot? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, photographers, man, they, they're they they're seeing things that other humans can't see. Right. That's why, you know, if the photo shoots at 10 o'clock, you don't need to turn up until one. They won't have fixed the lighting until then. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so true. Um, Phil, where uh for people that are been drawn in, where where should they keep up with you uh on the internet on the interwebs? So if you are on the steam powered internet, you can find me on the Instagram as at Philip S Duff. That's P H I L I P S for Stephen D U F F on Twitter, uh, as long as it still exists by the good grace of Lord Musk uh, at Philip Duff P H I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as Philip Duff, and you can find me on LinkedIn as Philip Duff, P-H-I-L-I-P-D-U-F-F. But be careful on LinkedIn because there's another Philip Duff who used to be the chairman of Goldman Sachs and he's a billionaire and it's not me, right? So don't link up to the wrong guy. He doesn't know about cocktail recipes and I don't know about money. And you'll also be able to find my brand, Old Dutch Geneva, in the best bars in the world. If they don't have it, it's not the best bar. And that's uh, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and whatnot as Old Dutch Geneva. That's O-L-D-D-U-F-F-G-E-N-E-V-E-R. And if you like websites, if you like YouTube, Spotify, podcasts, all that kind of thing, uh, I do a regular podcast called The Philip Duff Show. Um, we put it on YouTube. Sometimes it's just audio on YouTube. Sometimes it's a seminar where there's actual visuals. The most recent one is a seminar that I taught with uh, Ken Tagato of the famous New York bars Bargato and Bargato Niban at Bar Convent Berlin. That one is better to watch on YouTube on The Philip Duff Show because it's got visuals, including his new template for making cocktails with sake and shochu. But otherwise, the podcast comes out on a regular basis on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and whenever or wherever 
you get your podcasts. And we'll uh, we'll have links to all of those things uh, in the show notes too for everybody. So Phil, this is great. Thanks so much for today. This has been fun. My pleasure. Cheers. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.